Okay, good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Rita Stuti, I'm the head of the anthropology department, and I'm delighted to welcome all of you to this year's Malinowski Memorial Lecture. Our lecturer tonight is Dr. Harry Walker, who is a colleague from our own department here at the LSE. Harry certainly meets all the requirements for a Malinowski lecturer. He is not super famous, <laughs> he is not senior, and he has not already said all that there is to say about anthropology. Instead, through his ethnographic and theoretical work, his thinking new thoughts and his pushing at various disciplinary and intellectual boundaries, which is exactly what the Malinowski Memorial Lecture was set up to celebrate by giving the stage every year to a promising rising star. Aside from several important articles on exchange, on language and meaning, on football, on happiness, and more, Harry is the author of Under a Watchful Eye, a monograph which gives a highly evocative account of how people in Peruvian Amazonian grow into persons in a way that is not entirely perspectival. In his book, we read more about codependency, about the intimacy of coexistence, and about voluntary subordination than we read about predation and warfare. And we read about the intriguing interplay between two apparently contradictory values, the autonomy of the individual and the complete reliance on others. His lecture tonight, Equality Without Equivalence in Anthropology of the Common, will draw on the same body of ethnographic knowledge and theoretical reflections to address a similarly intriguing relationship, the one between individualism and equality. So please join me in welcoming our Malinowski lecturer, Harry Walker. Thanks very much, Rita, for the very kind introduction. Uh, I'm really honoured and, and humbled by the invitation to give this year's Malinowski Lecture, and thank you all for coming along tonight to hear it. Uh, actually, I was pleasantly surprised to learn recently that Malinowski, too, came to the LSE by way of Melbourne. Uh, it seems that we uh, both agree that Melbourne's not a bad place to recover from long bouts of gruelling fieldwork. So uh, there, there's, one, there's one side of the common... In Coral Gardens and Their Magic, Malinowski railed against two grand themes of 19th century anthropology. The notion of primitive communism and the idea of a general evolution of social forms from communal to individual. There is no more jejune and fruitless distinction in primitive sociology, he concluded, than that between individualism and communism. The Trobriand has exemplified a subtle blending of the two, while almost all work was done by cooperative groups, for example, these were cross-cut by individual land titles, a highly developed sense of individuality, and strong desires for individual distinctions. Malinowski's insight was nevertheless coloured by his own political commitments, especially his faith in the superiority of capitalist individualism over the rival collectivist ideologies of his age. 
His hostile attitude towards communism in the Europe of his day almost certainly informed his propensity to describe Melanesians in terms more appropriate to Western individuals. And while later generations of Melanesianists have done well to rectify this with individuals and so on, we'd be throwing the baby out with the bathwater to just ignore the individualism that Malinowski astutely discerned, not a concept of the person as a bounded asocial individual, but a recognisable moral stance emphasising the primacy of the person and of personal interests and prerogatives, though not grounded in private property and its acquisition, nor straightforwardly opposed to communal claims and responsibilities. The concept of individualism has negative connotations for many people today, conjuring ideas of social isolation, competition and the free market. And yet, as Dumont and others have shown, it lies at the heart of Western self-identity, anchoring liberal ideas of freedom and equality. It also underpins that amazingly resilient axis of cultural comparison between Western individualism and non-Western collectivism, even though Malinowski's own critique of such comparisons has since been echoed by countless others. So-called possessive individualism may well be a peculiarly modern invention, but references to individualism are actually scattered throughout the literature on small-scale non-state societies. Presumably because of the concept's bad publicity, however, these alternative individualisms and their political implications remain poorly understood. As for primitive communism, Malinowski rightly found the concept wanting, and let's face it, who'd want to revive it now in the face of ever-growing recognition of the sheer diversity of property regimes in existence. And yet, as he also made clear, a reflection on individualism would be inadequate without serious attention both to regimes of property and to the various communal arrangements and collective claims that contextualise and enable it. I don't want to argue for primitive communism here, though I do want to take up the growing academic as well as public interest in what's sometimes referred to as the commons, that is, in the use and management of resources that are or could be enjoyed collectively. Taking my cue from Hart and Negri, among others, I'll use the term common here, rather than the more familiar commons, to suggest, firstly, an expanded sense not only of the commonwealth of the material world which people may share, land, water and air, for example, but also to a range of cultural or immaterial resources, such as languages, knowledges, affects and so on, the so-called new commons, that potentially includes things as diverse as music, policing, highways, public housing, digital libraries and cyberspace. Importantly, though, the common is not to be confused with public property. It's a collective productive resource that's antithetical to property, whether public or private. In proposing a specifically anthropological theory of the common, my starting point will be the particular conceptions of a historically situated group of people. As such, I'm necessarily relying on ethnography from the part of the world that I know best, which is native Amazonia. While the Amazon rainforest might seem far removed from our own political struggles, a central aim of my talk is to reveal something of the reach and power of Amazonian social philosophies, and thus the potential of ethnography to enlarge our political and ethical imagination. Following a certain Amazonian logic, I'll try to outline an enlarged and potentially more radical vision of the common, to be sure just one of infinitely many possibilities, that destabilises its generally unquestioned foundation in the idea of common humanity, 
that essential horizon of similarity on which we've built our most cherished values of equality and justice. I shall propose an Amazonian conception of the common in which subjectivity is shaped in relation to wider ecological and affective resources that are continuously and collectively produced as well as held in common. This embraces not only shared economic resources, such as land or game animals, but also ways of organising and producing linguistic, cognitive and affective relations, commonalities of various kinds which never reduce differences to an abstract subject, such as the individual of liberalism or the collective of socialism. So in other words, I'm deliberately bringing together the classical Western conception of the commons or shared resources that are owned with this potentially much broader but ethnographically situated notion of the common, um, that is, as something that encompasses very basic questions of what humans um, themselves are thought to have in common with each other. So working with such a conception of the common, I hope to move beyond some of the limitations of our current thinking about the nature of community. I'm building here on an emerging body of work that's already begun to question the assumptions of similarity, unity and homogeneity that have for too long dominated our understandings of small-scale non-state peoples. A recent example is Rupert Stash's analysis of social relations among the West Papuan Koroi, which are characterised by a pervasive sense of distance and alterity, a society of others, as he calls it, akin to what Evan Killick in an Amazonian context calls living apart, which is certainly not compatible with the long-standing notion of community as Gemeinschaft. In this emerging line of thought, otherness or difference can be a bond rather than a division, and a form of connection can occur in the very act of refusing to connect. The wider challenge here is how to find new ways of understanding forms of being in common that refuse or exceed the logic of identity, state and subject. In other words, how to be in common without creating a community. Or how to say we otherwise than as a one. The question recalls Hobbes's famous distinction between the people and the multitude. Hobbes maintained that the multitude is not a political body because it's plural and therefore incoherent, unable to rule itself. For it to become political, it must become a people defined by a unity of will and action. The many must be reduced to one. Inspired by their reading of Spinoza, Hart and Negri have emphasised the radical potential of the multitude as a kind of emergent political body characterised by its dependence on the common rather than on property. Far from presupposing a blanket sameness or identity, this notion of the common hinges on an affirmation of difference and points to a necessary and intrinsic connection between commonality and singularity. This allows us to revisit, I think, what Malinowski perceived as the curious coexistence of individualism and communism, or individual and communal claims, while at the same time to interrogate the specific forms of individualism and equality bequeathed to us in the Western liberal tradition, in which the spectre of collectivism threatens to override individual liberties. As Joel Robbins points out, it's because, of our, underst it's because our understanding of equality presumes sameness, or an essential equivalence of individuals, that it inevitably comes into tension with liberty, understood as the right to differ. I would add that this is part of a broader failure to imagine being in common, except through the lens of private property, the market and the state. One of my purposes today 
is therefore to show that there exists a different kind of individualism, let's call it singularism, which is linked to a form of equality grounded in difference rather than sameness, or more precisely, in non-equivalence. Amazonia today is characterised by rapid change, spearheaded by Christianisation, marketization, and the increasing presence of the state. These changes are revealing. For example, contrary to some of the assumptions in the literature, Christianity did not invent the individual. Amazonian society has always been highly individualistic. What is truly new here is the group. The idea of the bounded group allows for the establishment of an equivalence between its members and thus a shift to a universalizing, homogenizing, categorical logic of identity. This leads to a conception of the common good that is potentially in tension with individual interests and thus to collective forms of organizing that can appear to threaten individual liberties. Amazonian singularism, by contrast, rests on very different ideas of what it means to be or live in common with others. And I seek to elucidate it here as an incitement to rethink the conceptual foundations of our own ideas of equality and justice. One way of posing the question might be as follows. What do individualism, equality and justice look like when developed outside the contexts of Christianity, the market and the nation state? What if, as Marshall Salins claims, Western civilization turns out, after all, to have been founded on a perverse and mistaken idea of human nature. Sorry, beg your pardon, it was all a mistake. His conclusion is blunt, though perhaps not much help. While I'm deeply interested in equality, which I'd argue is still far less well understood than inequality or hierarchy, I'm reluctant to use the term egalitarian for reasons that will become clear. What we find in Amazonia, I think, is not egalitarianism, but a tendency towards what I'll call equality without equivalence, corresponding to a kind of individualism without individuals, where a strong sense of the common leads directly to a politics of alterity and singularity, to a politics of the multitude. Allow me first briefly to justify and elaborate my claim that the principle at the core of Western notions of individualism, equality and justice has historically been that of the equivalence of individuals. That is, the possibility of comparing or measuring people on the basis of some external criterion which can lead to various forms of ordering and evaluating. This conception was forged above all in the American and French revolutions, where equality was first and foremost a democratic quality, a way of making a society of similar individuals in direct opposition to aristocratic society. The nation-state contributed to this homogenization. The term adonation was, called to was coined to describe the movement whereby a group of individuals make a nation, that is, achieve unity and equality. As one commentator put it at the time of the French Revolution, Quote, the revolutionary festivals impress a single uniform character on the social mass, and this creates a single uniform spirit, which therefore moulds all members of the state into a single uniform whole. Such a mode of equality leads to a quite specific understanding of social justice. A society of similars 
is one in which each individual, at least in principle, can imagine himself in the condition of every other individual. This capacity for psychological comparison leads to the hope of improvement as well as the fear of degradation of one's own position. I can imagine what, it's, what it would be like to be poor and I wouldn't like it. As Pierre rosan Vallon tells us in his recent book, The Society of Equals, this is where the notion of equality of opportunity originated. Unequal situations were counterbalanced by a strict equality of rights. Formal moral equality therefore became a way of legitimising material inequality because differences among individual situations were increasingly blurred by a powerful ideal of united communal existence. We French are all in this together. Hence the central contradiction of liberal capitalist democracies, the coexistence of an egalitarian founding philosophy with a social reality marked by substantial inequalities. In other words, inequality prospers when attached to the idea that all men are created equal. It's sometimes said, and actually the recent general election here would probably confirm this, that we've collectively opted for liberty and all but abandoned equality as a serious social goal, at best resigning ourselves to the attempts to alleviate ever-growing disparities of wealth. Yet as I mentioned earlier, the very idea that liberty and equality stand in tension largely comes down to the particular vision of equality invoked by those who have taken it most seriously. Despite Marx's own emphasis on individual self-actualization, equality for proponents of communal ownership in particular came to rest on the de-individualization and homogenization of society, prioritizing unanimity while allowing little space for conflict or deliberation or discordant voices. But perhaps the most significant expression of equivalence as a basis for justice is the overarching conception of a common humanity that orients our ability to recognise the moral claims of others, even those living at a great remove from ourselves. Martha Nussbaum has stated the notion clearly and succinctly. Quote, at the heart of our society's conception is the idea of human equality. All human beings are of equal worth, and that worth is inherent or intrinsic. It does not depend on a relationship to others, such as being the wife of X or the vassal of Y. This worth is equal. All human beings are worthy of equal respect or regard just in virtue of their humanity. End quote. So what I'm basically saying here is that for all our talk of we're all unique individuals and we have to find our true inner self and all that sort of thing, actually when you come down to it, that's just surface dressing. Um, you know, because our entire moral and legal system, our customary way of thinking, is actually built on this fundamental recognition of the equality of, of the equivalence of people and their basic legibility or knowability. I'm going to suggest that this reflects an abstract but relatively limited conception of what people have in common. Equivalence is also the logic of commodity exchange. As we know, capitalism is predicated precisely on the equivalence of the different products of labour. This is epitomised by money, whereby inherently unlike things are made commensurable, that is, equal. 
Yet if anthropologists have fruit, fruitfully explored the creation of equivalence in spheres of exchange um, as markets penetrate subsistence economies, the creation or subversion of equivalence between people is far less well understood. And I, don't think that the, I don't think the latter can simply be read as a consequence of the former. As David Graeber has argued in his History of Debt, the idea of equivalence embodied in money is actually far from obvious, and to really get a foothold, it probably had to build on the prior establishment of equivalence between people. This too requires some work, because in so-called human economies, where human life is the ultimate value, there's relatively little scope for treating two people as equivalent. Even the notion that a person can substitute for a person, that one sister can somehow be equated with another, is by no means self-evident. No one can be considered exactly equivalent to anything or anyone else, because each human being is a unique nexus of relations with others. It's only when removed from those relationships, ripped from their context, as, as Graeber describes it, as it were, as happens in slavery, for example, um, can a person become an object of exchange, legitimately and precisely substituting for another person or some precise quantity of goods. And this is why, according to Graeber, the spread of money and thus the logic of equivalence has historically been bound up in violence. I find this argument quite compelling, especially insofar as it pushes us to examine equivalence a little more carefully, and at the same time to move beyond the paradigm of exchange and reciprocity that's been dominant in anthropology for so long, and which takes for granted precisely what needs to be established. At the same time, however, the focus on violence and slavery risks overshadowing, I think, the various other ways in which forms of equivalence between people are established or undermined. This is what I want to explore. I now want to argue that a general refusal of equivalence lies at the heart of many of the most distinctive features of native Amazonian societies. I will briefly mention 10 such features with the proviso that they're not all found in equal degree throughout the region. And while I am attempting a kind of regional synthesis, it's not intended to be exhaustive or definitive. I'll draw a bit on my own fieldwork with the Urarina, a group of 4,000 or so hunter horticulturalists living in the Peruvian Amazon. Many of the features I discuss will be familiar to Amazonianists, though they've not been treated together before, so far as I know. And I'm admittedly covering a lot of ground, but my argument is extremely simple. I'll finish by showing how all these different expressions of non-equivalence ultimately stem from a particular vision of the common. Amazonian social organisation is notoriously fluid and amorphous, even atomistic, which accounts for much of its individualistic character. Even where clans exist, they don't function anything like corporate descent groups, and social life is structured in terms of the fabrication of the body, not the definition of groups or the transmission of goods. In fact, very often social groups last only as long as the individuals who comprise them. There's also a corresponding lack of clearly delineated social roles, 
That is, you can't really expect someone to behave in a particular way simply because they're, say, your uncle or your brother-in-law. Another way of saying this would be that identities are relational rather than categorical. And amorphism is further exacerbated by the fact that two people can often trace their genealogical relationship to each other in many different ways. So two of my closest friends in the field, for example, were related to each other as classificatory brothers, but also as uncle and nephew, and also as father-in-law and son-in-law. And this kind of intensity of relationship follows from a quite deliberate reiteration of, of marriages over several generations within loosely endogamous groups, so consolidating existing alliances rather than using marriage to try and expand and form new alliances. And that results in a very high density of overlapping ties such that it's quite hard to pin an individual down to a particular social role. For two people to be recognisably members of the same social role or social position, they have to be recognised as in some sense equivalent like all categorization, the, the recognition of social categories or classes hinges on the selection of equivalent instances or shared features which serve as the basis for grouping like items together. Amazonians seem to resist this, the science of the concrete at work, perhaps. This holds for gender relations too, I'd add. Unlike in Melanesia, say... Men tend not to form a community as such with vested interests to defend collectively as in their joint control over women. This characteristic refusal to suppress relevant differences between people in order to focus on their similarities is thus effectively a rejection of corporatism and its logic of interchangeable, equivalent or substitutable people taking on roles or positions in the firm, a society against the corporation perhaps. The possibility of substituting objects for persons is conspicuously absent in Amazonia. Homo-substitution is the rule. Material items don't stand for labour or for persons. Instead, individuals mobilise a variety of claims on the acts of others. So, for example, there's virtually no bride price, only bride service, where grooms go to work for their parents-in-law rather than pay some kind of money or goods. And a feature of bride service, perhaps the distinguishing feature, is that it doesn't work through the idiom of property. Unlike in other parts of the world, Melanesia again, say, material wealth does not function as a carrier of social relations. And there's nothing like pigs or yams that can be converted into general exchange values. Exchanges themselves, where they occur, are generally limited in scope and often coded meaning that specific objects are interchangeable with each other. Among the Urarina, for example, you can buy a canoe with a dog uh, and vice versa, but neither item is very easily cashed out into some universal medium of exchange. So even those few Urarina who do use money regularly would probably be unable to tell you how much a canoe or a dog actually costs. Amazonian peoples are often said to locate the creative power of their societies, the source of their vitality or novelty, as it were, in the predatory relation with the outside. This is expressed in hunting, warfare and shamanism, all of which are symbolically as well as materially significant throughout the region 
and all of which draw heavily on images of capture and predation. But the defining feature of predation is that it constitutes a negation of reciprocity. It's by definition a one-way transaction. Even though vengeance is widely offered as a motive for warfare and may contain a meaning of repayment or compensation, repaying a debt, there's not actually any deliberate exchange of lives. Instead, as Carlos Fausto has shown, mutual predation is actually the unintentional result of a general rejection of reciprocity. And the rejection of reciprocity is a rejection of equivalence. Attention to individual rather than collective or group identities corresponds to a pervasive sense of individual uniqueness and particularity. As the son and say at the end of their stories, according to Amy Penfield, I'm just like that, thus emphasising their unique and individual personalities and perspectives. Laura Rival has similarly emphasised the Warani's great interest in and profound respect for individual differences and drawn attention to the social recognition of idiosyncrasies in oral expression, child socialisation and productive work. Interestingly, this respect for individual differences is often grounded in explicit ideas of interiority or a core inner self. The Urarina, for example, often talk about the heart-soul as something that's always hidden to others and is associated with a private inner voice or conscience. It's a shame, I think, that the cultural recognition of individuality, uniqueness, singularity, has received a lot less attention from ethnographers, I think, than the emphasis on the relational or the individual constitution of personhood. Um, I certainly don't think those two things are opposed, and in a sense they imply each other. Many people in Amazonia and elsewhere, most famously Oceania, will refuse to speculate on the mental states of others and even disavow what the psychologists term a theory of mind. People are, quite simply, made out to be opaque rather than legible. For example, if I were to ask one of my Urarina friends why, say, Jose didn't want to come with us downriver, or why Juana suddenly got upset and left the party, they'd probably reply by saying something like, oh, I have no idea, you'd have to ask her. Given that they almost certainly do have a pretty good idea, what's the significance of such claims? Well, opinions vary, but in the first instance, I'd want to contrast it with an emphasis on the legibility of the subject that we all know from James C. Scott's work to be one of the main goals of state building. And remember, too, that I suggested earlier that equality of opportunity stems from our sense of being effectively willing to project ourselves psychologically into the situations of others. Secondly, I think it has a lot to do, this opacity, I think it has a lot to do with the cultivation of a particular form of respect. The Urubina often insisted on the importance of mutual respect, their term for which means, literally, to each defend the heart-soul of the other. Now, this reference to the heart-soul, which, as I mentioned earlier, refers to the hidden inner core of the person, is important because it links respect to the quality of concealment and thus to a concept of dignity. The outward dignity of a person, their composure, calmness, restraint, and so on, 
is effectively lost when they're inappropriately exposed, not only physically but psychologically, for example, to forms of evaluation. The preservation of dignity, by contrast, requires maintaining a certain distance and insisting on the intangibility and inaccessibility of the person, which is to say their opacity. Ururina would often respond to my questions by saying, who knows why he's like that? His way is different. Or as the schwa often say, according to Natalia Buitron, we're not all the same. I think this is a compelling way of expressing respect for human dignity. Unlike love, where coming closer seems to be the goal, there's a sense of proper distance in the concept of respect, and this is probably a key part of its appeal. In immediate social environments like this, close proximity to others is a given to the extent that people can all too easily feel like their personal boundaries are being eroded. Connecting with others is easy. Differentiation, on the other hand, must be actively affirmed. People's opacity is significant when attributing responsibility in cases of wrongdoing. The guilty mind, or mens rea, the, the intention to commit the crime, which is central to the Western tradition of criminal law, is simply not relevant in Amazonia, as it's not in many other parts of the world. Which isn't so surprising, given that it's been shown that the epistemological foundation, historically speaking, for an investigation of the state of mind of the accused was precisely the belief in the moral equality of all participants in legal proceedings. Amazonians take this still further, with their almost total lack of any collective mechanisms for the resolution of disputes. This means high levels of factionalism and fissioning or villages splintering, and so this kind of centrifugal tendency, a resistance to centralisation. Emotionally speaking, though, this corresponds to characteristic rapid fluctuations between love and rage, with little in between sometimes, it seems. My friend one day is my enemy the next. There's little of the impartiality, or better, indifference, which lies at the heart of Western notions of justice. This somewhat dichotomous nature of Amazonian social life, these sudden emotional transitions, is again grounded in an absence of principles of equivalence, which are required if there's to be a middle ground of disputation and argument, a space where people can openly disagree, but without resorting to violence. There's none of what Luke Boltansky calls disputes in justice, where people can be compared or measured on the basis of some criterion or merit, criterion of merit or worth. Much as love entails an absence of calculation and reciprocity, so too is pure hostility outside equivalence, ungoverned by calculation or proportionality. Amazonians tend to avoid formulating explicit rules, which require evoking categories of person and behaviour. They don't make explicit predictions about what will happen if some behavioural expectation is infringed, and they're reluctant to speculate about what another person might or should do in a given situation. A Panara person, for example, Elizabeth Hewitt tells us, would be unlikely to say, wives should look after their husbands and children. 
but might well say of a specific woman, Suakje is beautiful. She looks after her husband and looks after her children. And people don't ever break rules or violate norms of conduct per se because there are no norms separate from the person. Instead, people might, for example, behave as animals do, like a savage jaguar, say, who doesn't know respect. And so, in a sense, they literally become less than human. This relative lack of legalism means not just the absence of formal law, written statutes, courts and tribunals, or other collective mechanisms of mediation, but something even deeper, namely categorical ways of dealing with the consequences of actions. As Paul Dresch tells us, legalism is grounded in categories and makes them explicit. Quote, a mother's brother does this and a sister's son does that. If a free man should lie with a woman then one th- not his own, then one thing, and if a slave should do so, then another. One category of persons and its attendant rules can be contrasted explicitly with others to produce arguments about proper conduct. The duties of kinsmen, uh, say, could be set against those of neighbours. It can do this because law stands apart from the flux of events and personalities, suggesting an order of affairs that outlasts outlasts the moment. In other words, law and legalistic thought more generally are founded on transcendent values in terms of which conduct is judged, and thus again on a logic of equivalence and equality. People can be measurable by an equal standard only insofar as they're brought under an equal point of view. Without an equivalence between persons, there can be no law and vice versa. Like other hunting peoples, Amazonian hunters are famously self-deprecating when they've just returned home with a successful kill. Generally speaking, people downplay their prowess, while others studiously ignore it. This prevents differences of talent from becoming socially significant and is directly opposed to our own idea of meritocracy. To take a different example, officers and formal positions of authority among the Ururina were not necessarily awarded to those who displayed the best capacities for leadership, which often meant that the real authority usually didn't lie with the official leaders. There's a sense in which a person's capacities are unknowable in their totality, and in any case, not entirely their own, for many other individuals have contributed to their development. This insistence on socialising rather than privatising individual talent goes a long way in legitimising expectations of sharing resources. In sum, norms of fairness or moral desert have little purchase. I've seen little evidence of a principle of equity, that is, the idea that rewards should be proportional to merit or contribution. This is because equity, too, rests on a principle of equivalence according to which the contributions of people can be calculated and ranked in relation to some external standard. And there's some experimental evidence for this too. For those of you who know the ultimatum game in experimental economics, that was run with uh, Machigenga, um, and they were sort of off the charts because they, the ultimatum game requires two players. One person can propose how a sum of money is to be divided, and the other player can either accept or refuse that proposed division. 
and the Machigenga accepted every single offer that was proposed, no matter how low, um, suggesting that they had, well, according to these researchers, no concept of unfairness. Instead of fairness, equality or justice, we find a pervasive emphasis on love, pity and compassion, forms of emotional attunement that are so closely related to each other that I'll call them, following Doug Holland, a love-pity-compassion complex. Their common starting point is the difference, inequality or asymmetry of persons and a relative absence of reciprocity. Take the Urarina word for love, belaya, which means also, literally, to give as a gift. That is, without an element of strategy or calculation, without expectation of an equivalent return. In a regime of love, past conflicts or judgments of worth are willfully forgotten because love is firmly oriented to the present. There's no word meaning to forgive in the Uravina language, to the best of my knowledge, but people are almost always ready to forget past grievances. Pity, too, is outside equivalence and certainly not an emotion experienced among status equals. This can lend an element of strategy to its evocation, Hence the preponderance of self-deprecating remarks like, oh, poor little me, as a way of eliciting the pity and therefore generosity of better situated others. Similarly, it's common to hear comments like, oh, I gave him some meat because I pitied him. This is what drives the sharing of resources, not an ideology of egalitarianism. Nor is empathy particularly relevant here, for all the fuss that seems to surround that concept in academia at the moment. Straightforward compassionate helping is in any case much more effective than empathetic distress. While formal democratic principles have made inroads into Amazonian life, they still appear to to encounter resistance. Consider, for example, the elections for local leadership positions now held every once in a while by the Urarina in accordance with the legal requirement imposed by the Peruvian government when a position such as lieutenant governor, local leader, becomes vacant um, and and a ballot is held and every member is entitled to vote. So the votes are duly tallied. You know, everyone votes. The votes are duly tallied and the winning candidate is instated. In most cases I witnessed, though, there was only ever one candidate, or if more than one, everyone present would vote for the same candidate. I eventually realised the actual decisions about who'd fill the positions were already made by the time of the elections because for several days beforehand, a consensus would be established through countless discrete face-to-face discussions. So an active and practical democracy, perhaps, rather than a formal one. And I recently heard that the neighbouring... Aguaruna had come up with an even better solution, and according to the anthropologist Shane Green, in one election that he witnessed, uh, everyone present raised their hand for every candidate on the list. (laughs) In short, the idea of one person, one vote, seemed to be well understood but politely ignored when it came to decisions about leadership and representation. Even the idea of representation itself sits uncomfortably for most people insofar as it involves speaking on behalf of others, something incompatible with a far more radically democratic form of individualism 
based on people's radical unknowability and non-equivalence. I guess singularities can't be represented. At issue here is a broader aversion to producing a sense of commonality through abstraction or the production of a sense of common humanity as an abstract essence present in each individual and in virtue of which all are equally worthy of respect. In our own institution of universal suffrage, citizens enjoy the right to be represented by virtue only of the qualities they share in common and not those which differentiate them. For this reason, the citizen symbolises the generality that exists in each individual who, in exercising the right to vote, is stripped of all his or her defining characteristics and associations, back to a kind of degree zero of sociality. Abstraction is what drives the Western idea of political equality, which is precisely why it was once so radical and exemplary. It emancipated the individual from all the social distinctions by which people are usually ordered and classified. At the same time, it opened up a new horizon for the collective imaginary, one of radical immaterial equivalence between people. For this reason, formal democracy is ultimately still an example of government by the one, whether, whether that one be the monarch, the state, the nation, the party, or the people. The multitude, on the other hand, cannot be sovereign. It cannot be reduced to a unity and does not submit to the rule of one. Let me summarise my argument so far. I've proposed that many of the most distinctive features of Amazonian sociality can be understood in terms of a far-reaching moral stance characterised by a rejection of the factors that produce equivalence between people. So this plays out in terms of, among other things, social organisation characterised by amorphism, uh, intensity and instability, personhood characterised by opacity, singularity and non-abstraction, uh, cosmology centred on predation as the negation of reciprocity, an intense emotional life characterised by oscillations between love and anger, and forms of justice that are indifferent to fairness or impartiality. In a general sense, equivalence is produced when two terms are compared, not just to each other, but to a third term that transcends, or at least stands apart from both. As an aside, its refusal by Amazonians might usefully be understood in relation to what Morris Bloch has termed the transcendental social, which consists, in the first instance, of essentialised roles and groups which exist separately from the individual who holds them. Bloch gives the example of the nation-state as an imagined community and also of a professor who should act as a professor, irrespective of the kind of person she is. These are just the kind of things that Amazonians don't tend to buy into. He then goes on to emphasise the inseparability of this transcendental social from religion and ultimately from the state, which effectively feeds on the transcendental social to produce its own image of cosmic order. How the transcendental might be destabilised or averted isn't something he addresses, but seems to me to be an extremely interesting question. But that's not the direction I want to head in this talk. Instead, I want to show how all these different features of Amazonian societies, these expressions of singularity or infinite difference, both emerge from and help to produce a specific conception of the common.
Let me begin with the words of one of my Urarina interlocutors, an old man named Divorcio, who spoke to me once about their continuing need for shamans, or as the Urarina call them more simply, people who drink ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is the hallucinogenic vine that's common in Amazonian shamanism. We were created together with our land. Our, our creator created our land and also created ayahuasca for the defence of our climate and our children. He left us ayahuasca for our defence against all kinds of illnesses and so that those who drink it can make a bridge for the game animals to come over here. Like this, we can live well. It's not just anything. This is a very typical kind of statement. The Urarina said this sort of thing to me all, all the time. And Tavorcio's statement, which I'll shortly unpack, po- points to the role of, of shamanism in producing a multifaceted common that I will separate for convenience into three partly overlapping dimensions. It's corporeal, ecological, and affective. One of the most important contributions of the so-called ontological turn in anthropology has been its radical working through of the key insight that other people may have radically different ways of recognising the basis of their own commonality. In stark contrast to the classic Western emphasis on culture or mind as the basis of social groups or even of species, Amazonians have been famously said to draw on ideas about the body when articulating their own sense of similarities and differences. This makes sense of the cultural emphasis on the, on the material fabrication of the body that rather than the symbolic construction of groups, which I mentioned earlier, as well as an apparently widespread sense that non-humans may be as sentient as humans, even though they're said to inhabit radically different worlds because of their non-human bodies. My starting point for elucidating an Amazonian common is therefore the body, which is continually worked on throughout the life course by a range of different people and could be considered as a communal project. Feeding, training and adorning the body are what turns people into kin as well as into humans, for humanity is a highly unstable position, never taken for granted and continuously sought after through repeated acts of care for the body. So hence you find this common notion that one's kinfolk are almost by definition more human than others. But there's more at stake here than simply creating a community of similars because the body is thought of less as substance than as a bundle of habits, affects and capacities. Having a particular body means acting in particular ways, exploring certain environments and consuming certain foods. That's why making sure that babies turn out human requires that they or their parents eat the right kinds of food. And that's why in myths, a man who, for example, goes to live with anteaters and then after a while turns into an anteater, you know, this bodily transformation will be exemplified in the myth by his you know, eating of ants. So in short, the body indexes something like an ecological niche which quickly leads us to the surrounding environment. When it comes to those natural resources upon which life depends, things like game animals and fish, wild plants and the like, it turns out to be difficult, if not impossible, well, at least until very recently, for individuals or groups to establish anything like exclusive rights of ownership over them. There's a real sense of collective belonging to the land, and of the land of something as something for the benefit of everyone, despite the temporary use rights established through cultivation. Hence, Tavorcio's insistence that people were created together with the land and that by drinking ayahuasca, shamans create a bridge for uh, animals in order to lure them from the sky to the earth so that people can eat them and live well. 
One of the central aims of shamanism is, in fact, to ensure a steady supply of the animals and other resources, like a stable climate, on which life depends. And so the ecological common is also considered to be effectively the product of human action. Of course, the same terrain is inhabited and exploited by other species who might have their own corporeal common, and coexisting species might be at once reliant on and threatened by each other in different ways. Yet there's also a sense of inclusivity, even in the face of mutual suspicion, uh, not least because certain forms of communication can cut across species barriers, linking people together in shared communicative networks such that this ecological common explicitly encompasses a sense of radical difference. There's a crucial difference here from the Western uh, commons, though, since people often claim that all animals and many trees and plants have a spirit master or owner. Throughout much of the region, a pervasive discourse of owners, both human and non-human, might seem to imply something like a native theory of property. But in fact, Amazonian ownership relations have little to do with property as we understand it, because they're a way of conceptualising a world of asymmetrical relations between subjects rather than juridical relations between objects. They don't rest on anything like rights of exclusion. To the extent that ownership exists, it's always individual. It's never collective or communal, suggesting an ecological common cross-cut by myriad personal bonds of protection. The idea that animals and other resources may have owners of one form or another doesn't stop them from being spoken about as being for the benefit of humans and from being central to how people speak about their world in common. In practice, the impossibility of establishing juridical ownership over wild resources, like game animals, is precisely why there's such a strong imperative to share those resources as widely as possible. The third dimension of the common centres on that affective state often glossed by Amazonian peoples themselves as as living well, well, well-being, living well. Another really central theme in the regional literature and very widely cited um, as an ultimate goal of life and of people's productive efforts or as that which imbues life with a sense of meaning and purpose and direction. Among the Urarina, a state of well-being or happiness or tranquility is the precondition and end goal of meaningful human labour, which is always directed at the satisfaction of the needs and desires of loved ones. As Tavorcio's comment earlier suggested, tranquility or, or living well is also one possible goal of shamanism and encompasses things like abundant knowledge, good health and absence of misfortune. Most importantly, at all, perhaps, most importantly of all, perhaps, it's necessarily shared one simply cannot be tranquil on one's own. Like language or a good idea, tranquility as a collective resource isn't depleted or divided when more people share in it, but actually enhanced. These three dimensions, corporeal, ecological and affective, reflect a sense of the common as both product and precondition of processes of production. Replenishing game animals, conserving the climate and ensuring people's well-being are all inseparable from each other so far as the urina are concerned and all are a central focus of shamanism. This is not to ignore the fact that shamanism also has a dark side 
occasionally feeding an ethic of suspicion that can lead to hostility and fissioning and which disrupts the emergence or the stability of the group. As such, we could conclude that shamanism, as one of the central and defining institutions of Amazonian societies, is at base precisely a set of practices for the production of the common, even while it undermines the very possibility of community. Or better, shamanism destabilizes the community while it produces the common. More generally, because human labor is directed at crafting and nourishing the body and thereby fabricating a particular perspective and creating a particular set of feelings, what's ultimately being produced is not objects for subjects so much as social relationships or even subjectivity itself. This is why the common is not opposed to singularity. More than merely a set of institutional property rights arrangements, we might see the common as a kind of social imaginary, though one quite unlike the nation-state as imagined community and the opposite of Gemeinschaft or the organic community. It works against commensurability, equivalence, reciprocity and exchange. It breaks down divisions between natural and artificial, material and immaterial, production and reproduction, work and life. Amazonian societies were once famously described as societies against the state because they seemed to have developed ways of reigning in the power of their leaders and preventing it from evolving. It has to be said, though, that Amazonian peoples today seem, if anything, pretty enthusiastic in their dealings with the state and its representatives, who are all too easily incorporated into the webs of asymmetrical relationships that characterise life in the region. Libertarian might usefully describe the Amazonian outlook, but egalitarian would be quite misleading. Where egalitarian is used to describe is used in a political or democratic sense to describe an ideology in which all are equal participants or citizens, this invokes notions of equivalence and a bounded polity which are precisely opposed to Amazonian sociality. Alternatively, if by egalitarian is meant an ideal distribution of resources such that each person has an equal share, this too rests on an economics of scarcity that's at odds with the non-competitive nature of the common. An emphasis on material equality can all too easily end up highlighting the ways in which people are at odds with each other rather than seeing them as members of a supportive common enterprise. In Amazonia, at least, many of the most desirable goods, well-being, say, or companionship or belonging, are generally not the so-called rival goods usually studied by economists, which, if possessed or enjoyed by one person, can't be possessed or enjoyed by another. This shifts attention towards the enjoyment of what can be shared rather than privately consumed. The logic of the common undermines the development of political or moral equality founded on the equivalence of persons. What's common isn't a natural or fixed substance, but produced, open and multifarious, largely external, grounded in the individual's material historical positioning. It's thus opposed to likeness, which implies definition in relation to characteristics internal to the individual. In other words, if likeness appears as the prime ingredient of unity, 
Commonality avoids reducing heterogeneity and difference to a chain of equivalence. As such, the community, as we understand it, is never fully constituted and so never becomes opposed to individual liberty. This implies a conception of persons as singularities rather than individuals, opaque and largely illegible, potentially infinite, unknowable. There's no abstract notion of common humanity here. In fact, humanity remains little more than a possibility, a potential, perhaps never fully realised, which is why it remains open to everyone, even non-humans. The firm distinctions between subjects and objects, or between humans and non-humans, that characterise Western property regimes are eroded when personhood rests on a concept of the common that's external, concrete and collectively produced, rather than abstract and innate. In this perspective, it's clear that personhood, property and ontology form an inseparable whole, each implying the other. Nowhere is this better illustrated, perhaps, than in the case of animism. Much has been made of the fact that that animals and other non-humans are fully sentient beings, according to Amazonian ontologies, with thoughts and feelings and cultures just like ours. But if you examine the ethnography, such claims are actually very context-dependent and more often thought of as something thought of as a kind of possibility uh, rather than treated as a certainty. In other words, people just leave it open that animals might think and speak or have a culture. I would argue that animism is simply the logical consequence of a more fundamental insistence on the radical opacity and unknowability of the individual. Whether people are talking about a human, or a jaguar, or a kapok tree, what's important to them is recognition of, uh, recognition of uncertainty and of the possibility of a deep interiority that we simply cannot judge or pronounce upon. Who knows what animals are capable of? In other words, animism is simply the outcome of a form of individualism predicated on singularities within the common rather than equivalent individuals within a regime of property. Following from this, it may not be coincidental that the Western conception of equality coincided with the enclosure of the commons and the rise of private property. This is not only because private property and the law work hand in hand to produce a sense of individual subjects as formally equal. As the grounds of what we share with others, our common habitat, the land, water, has been privatised and enclosed, it's tempting to speculate that this has itself prompted an internalisation and an essentialisation of the common under the guise of universal humanity. In other words, if enjoyment of the common as a collectively produced relational good implies a multiplicity of singular differences, its erosion and privatisation compels people to find the source of their common being elsewhere, deposit an equivalence of essences to overcome the ever-widening gap that isolates them from each other. The ancient Western concept of the commons is a quite simple idea that forms the basis for a kind of economics run by neither state nor market. It's also an idea that we've perhaps never needed so urgently. Around the world today, we find people mobilising around the commons framework, 
which is proving to be a powerful concept for connecting many disparate struggles and issues. The attempt to recover and enlarge in some way the common and to thwart its capture by capital is now virtually a necessary component of any radical political project. The nature of the common is changing, however, as production increasingly takes on an immaterial form. That is to say, what is produced under the conditions of late capitalism in the West are, increasingly, ideas, knowledge, forms of communication, affects, images, and so on. Such immaterial labour thus moves out of the strictly economic domain and directly produces not just objects, but social relationships and even subjectivity itself. Who we are, how we view the world, how we interact with each other, are all created through this social, biopolitical production. Yet this new form of the common, according to Hart and Negri, brings with it a radical potential as it increasingly exceeds the ability of capital to control it, resisting legal and economic efforts to privatise it or copyright it or to bring it under public control. The common, and just think here of the internet, simply functions better when it's not owned or privatised. Under these conditions, the undifferentiated unity of the people is thus said already to be giving way to the plural singularities of the multitude, opening up a new terrain of struggle. In seeking to understand what these changes might mean, while enlarging our sense of political possibility, anthropology has a crucial role to play. As Claude Lévi-Strauss once famously put it, anthropologists are here to witness that the manner in which we live, the values that we believe in, are not the only possible ones, that other modes of life, other value systems have permitted and continue to permit other human communities of finding happiness. <laughs> this is the radical potential of anthropology to demonstrate other realities and, at the same time, to mount a critique of our own current, current reality, to teach us how to be other than what we are. This can work in part by showing us that we already are other than ourselves. As Garçon Hage put it, our otherness is always dwelling within us. There is always more to us than we think, so to speak. In a way, perhaps, we are all Amazonians now. What the Amazonian logic offers here, to be clear, is not a model for a way of life, but a different perspective one that brings into focus an encompassing and enlarged image of the common, which at the same time exposes the nature of equivalence as anything but inevitable. At a time when the revolutionary democratic ideals of the 18th and 19th century are floundering and new forms of the common are beginning to flourish, embracing this logic could not only better equip us to defend this new common against new forms of enclosure, but reorient us to the ways in which people are incommensurable, unknowable and illegible. This could in turn help to shape initiatives aiming at equality in practice rather than in theory, or to legitimise projects of redistribution grounded in respect rather than fairness, or to foster more personalised models of justice in which vengeance and compassion might both play a legitimate role. 
undoing the horizon of similarity that constitutes our conception of life in common, with its polities of representation and its ideologies of equality of opportunity, might open up all kinds of possibilities. Ethnography clearly has an important role to play in reconstructing an affirmative politics of the common. There are many ways in which equivalence can be thwarted, just as there are many ways of thinking freshly about individuality and collectivity. The basis of human similarity and difference might just be the oldest question in anthropology, and now is the time to revisit it. Thank you, Harry, for a splendid lecture. What remains to be said is that, as most of you will know, the LSE always has a question and answer session so that we give people the opportunity to ask questions to the speaker. Now, in the case of the Malinowski lecture, by tradition, this period of questions doesn't happen here in the theater, but happens on the fifth floor in the senior common room where we are all, you are all invited to come to have a drink but also to ask questions to Harry who I know is very eager to hear. <laughs> For real, that's what he said before we started. He's very eager to listen to your questions and I'm sure he'll have brilliant answers as well. So please come to the fifth floor if you're able, walk because the lifts are small and uh, we'll have drinks and we'll celebrate um, our lecture tonight. Thank you, Helen. Thank you.